Great to see you guys. Well, I am so excited today because you're finally going to get some good preaching around here. I have a guest in today that's a dear friend of mine. Pastor Marcus Meekin pastors a great church in the Cincinnati area. He took over a church that had split and, and it was in a big mess, and that happens in church world sometimes, in case you didn't know that. And uh, he came in and just loved on the people, church of three, 400 people at the most on a, on a good day, and just loved these people and poured it into them and built, built them into who they are today. And now that is a church of four to 5,000 people in Cincinnati. He's got all these Cincinnati Bengals pillars come to the church. He's not going to tell you all that. I'm telling you that. This guy's an incredible leader. He's just, uh, there's just a steadiness about him that I so much appreciate. He's one of my closest friends. And so when I have problems, when I'm struggling with something, I call this guy. He's on our board of directors. I gladly submit under him as one of the, one of the leaders and covering of our church. Please give a warm South Texas welcome to Pastor Marcus Meekum. Well, good morning. Good morning. Y'all are looking great, looking incredible. Look at your neighbor and say, you look like you've been working out. <laughs> Come on, where are all the single people at? Raise your hand. Single people. This is, a time, this is your time. This is your moment. Single people, raise your hand. Why are you embarrassed to be single? You should be throwing both hands up right now. I'm available. Come on, let them know. I'm available. Uh, I want to say hello to all those uh, watching online and at all of our campuses. We're believing God's going to speak to each of you in a special way. And thank you for giving me some of your time, praying that this will be meaningful uh, for you as well. You know, I just celebrated Friday, Sarah and I, my wife, celebrated our 22 years of being married. 22 years. Amazing. And she had this, she had this crazy dream last week that that I bought her a diamond necklace for our anniversary. And she woke me up and she said, Marcus, what does that mean? You know, I'm like, well, you're just gonna have to wait, you know, for our anniversary and we're gonna see. And so she's so excited, she can't wait. wait. And you know, I mean, if you've been married 22 years, you know you gotta, you gotta listen to your cues, right? You gotta, you, know, you gotta have skill to keep it together for 22 years. And so finally the day is there, Friday morning, we wake up, we're exchanging cards, we're exchanging gifts, and she rips open her gift. She's so excited, and I bought her the perfect gift, a book on the meaning of dreams. <laughs> so it's no accident that I've been married for 22 years. I'm gifted. Seriously, though, for real, we, we, you know, we're getting up there in age, and we're trying to figure out retirement, and we didn't really think about that very much. And so we started watching some Dave Ramsey stuff. Anybody Dave Ramsey stuff? It's the stuff you listen to, but you don't do. And, um, <laughs> you know, you should. But, you know, there's that whole part about, like, unexpected expenses, and that's what we always do. We save, and then an unexpected expense hits, and then we spend it. And so we started thinking about how can we plan out the unexpected expenses. And did you know that in your car there's an airbag, and if the airbags deploy, it costs you $500 per airbag. So even if you're by yourself and you get in a wreck and the airbags on like the passenger side go off, it costs you $500 per airbag. And so there's that little key area. I didn't know what this means, but you can actually turn off your airbag on the passenger side. So if you get in a wreck and there's not a passenger, right, you save $500. And I started thinking about some of the people that ride with me sometimes. <laughs> you know, $500. A lot of money and um,
And so I ended up getting in a wreck and I called Sarah. I'm like, don't worry, I'm fine. My airbag went off, I'm good. But your mom, she's in the hospital, you need to check on her. Anyway, I'm so glad to be here. If you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Deuteronomy. While you're turning there, uh, Bill and Jessica are, are a couple, and Bill is a friend that uh, has been such an encouragement to me over the years. At some really critical points, uh, he was there for me, and uh, we loved him so much, and uh, I know you do too. And you know, one of the things I thought what could I say to you that you don't already know? Because you see just how amazing he is every single week. But I had the privilege several years ago of being asked to serve on the board. And my very first board meeting, I was not really looking forward to it because if you've ever been on a board, they're not really that ex- the meetings aren't that exciting. And I was blown away by how spiritual that meeting was. And I can remember sensing the presence of God. I can remember it being a prayerful time, a prophetic time. I can remember uh, Bill sharing his vision, uh, decisions that need to be made. I can remember the humility. I can remember the level of accountability uh, that was in that moment. And I knew from that moment that I had to fix the way I run my own board because it's more than just minutes. It's more than just decisions. It really is spiritual what we do. And uh, to have that experience uh, made me a better leader. And I just felt like maybe just not what you see up here, but behind the scenes, the level of integrity, the level of accountability, the level of efficiency behind every single thing that you guys do is top, top notch. And so you should thank God for great leadership. It's not everywhere. And so can we give Pastor Bill and his wife a good hand clap? And the vision real quick, come on, let's talk about the vision. What is it? To take as many people to heaven before we die period. There we go. There we go. Deuteronomy 3 and verse 11, for only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead, his bed, was an iron bed, nine cubits in length and four cubits in width. Or I'm estimating here, 14 feet long and seven feet wide is how big this guy's bed was. Let's pray real quick. Father, we love you. Ask that you speak to every heart, encourage, inspire, Uh, correct, convict, do whatever you need to do, but don't let us leave the same as we showed up. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen. Well, many of us have the background that the children of Israel to occupy the promised land had to face giant after giant after giant. We would know that their first report was they're like grasshoppers in the sight of these giants. They wouldn't just face one or two, but they would actually face 31 giants and occupying the promised land. So they are bona fide giant killers by the time we read this particular text. We hear about the details of these giants, like Goliath. We know his stature. We know what his weaponry was like, the size of his sword and his shield and the weight of his armor. So these are are dangerous enemies that they are dealing with. And the Bible says that they've overcome every single giant they've come up against, 30 different giants they've been confronted with and they've conquered. They're all the way down to their final giant. They've defeated every single giant but this one. 
Every single thing they've dreamed for, everything they believe God for, everything for generations they've heard about the promises of God. They're right there. Their destiny is right in front of them. They can sense it. They can feel it. They can taste it. It's so it's finally so close after 400 years of being enslaved and God supernaturally delivering them after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and needing the supernatural provision of God, conquering city after city, giant after giant. They're finally right there, one giant away. The Bible tells us that his name is King Og. Now, I would think that this giant would be the fiercest of all the giants. If resistance and adversity becomes its greatest right before breakthrough, then this giant should be the most dangerous of all. This giant being the final one should make Goliath look like a wimp. This giant should be the strongest, mightiest giant of all. I'm thinking about how massive this giant should be, how dangerous it should be. The Bible teaches us that they're about to enter into a place of consistency, stability, a place of permanence, a place where they're not wandering around, no more nomadic lifestyle, no more living in tents. They get to own their own homes. They get to raise their own crops. They get to plant their own vineyards. All of this is right at their fingertips, but they're one giant away, one obstacle away. Surprisingly, all we hear and all we read in scripture about this giant is the size of its bed, 14 foot long and seven foot wide. This giant before they enter the land flowing with milk and honey, this giant that they have to face before they get to eat grapes the size of grown men is known by one thing, the size of its bed, this massive king-sized bed. The reason I want to take some time and focus on this is because I don't think that some of life's dangerous giants are necessarily that overt. They're not loud. They're not intimidating. Many times they're not easy to recognize, but the most dangerous enemies that we face many times are more subtle. The most dangerous temptations of the enemy are more seductive. They're more covert. They're more stealth. Many times it's hard to pick up on those things that are the most threatening to our life. And when you think about this final giant, there's nothing really that crazy about it, just the size of its bed. And I want to use this to talk about the subtle, the very subtle giant of complacency. See, complacency is incredibly dangerous, but it's hard to recognize that it's got a hold of you. It's really hard to recognize when it's got a hold of somebody else. But this is the kind of giant that gets people that have been serving God for some time, people that have been in their walk with God for several years. This is the giant that is the most subtle and the most seductive. You know, if you think about addictions and how many thousands and of lives have been destroyed. Next to that, complacency will have killed its tens of thousands. If unforgiveness and bitterness has killed its thousands, complacency will have killed its tens of thousands. If strife and division has killed many churches, then 
you would have to know complacency has taken out more ministries and more churches than anything else. You see, complacency is this mindset, I've gone this far and I'm not going any further. Complacency is a mindset of I'm just going to get by. It's a place of little commitment. In the book of Revelations, it says it's this mindset, I'm not cold and I'm not hot. I'm not hot and I'm not cold. And the Bible says it's this kind of mindset that makes God sick. It, not, it causes him to feel nauseated because just the mindset of, of this, this complacent life, God simply says there's nothing about that that I want to be a part of. God takes a great stance on complacency because complacency is spiritual quicksand. Once it gets a hold of you, it's so hard to pull yourself out of it. And this is what complacency is. Complacency is not searching for security or safety in life. Complacency is a gnawing sense on the inside. Something's not right in an area of my life, but I do nothing about it. I know my walk with God's not right. I know it's off. I know that the intensity I've had with the Lord in times past isn't where it once was, but I just don't do anything about it. I just am not doing anything to, to shift it or change it. There were days I would wake up in the morning and I couldn't wait to get to Church Unlimited. I'd be so excited to hear what Pastor Bill, uh, what God had put on his heart. I couldn't wait to, to get in the worship. I couldn't wait for the presence of God. I couldn't wait to hear about times of vision and new territory that we needed to take. And, and I would get so excited about the things that God was doing. And for some reason, I just, not sensing that the way that I once was. Maybe it's the people that I started to hang out with. They're also in the quicksand of complacency. And I just have a gnawing sense. It's not like it used to be, but I'm doing nothing about it. I know me and the wife need to have a conversation. I know the marriage isn't where it needs to be. It's not cold. It's not hot. It's just indifferent. I know a conversation needs to be had that's going to hurt feelings. I know there's probably going to be tears. There's probably going to be days or maybe even weeks of silent treatment, but something's not right. And I know that conversation needs to be had. I know I need to go forward for prayer. I know we maybe need to sit down and talk to a counselor. I know that something's not right, but I'm doing nothing about it. That's what complacency looks like, whether it's in your relationships or your dreams, complacency is you've settled for defeat. It's not a bloody gruesome defeat. It's complacency is this king-sized massive bed, 14 foot long and seven foot wide. I believe complacency is an insult to God. If it makes him sick, guess what? It should scare us as well. Have you ever thought about how many times Christians are kind of like Goldilocks. Remember Goldilocks? She walks into the three bears house and what she do? She goes to eat the porridge and she says, oh, this, this one's too hot, right? And then she goes to eat the other one. This one's too cold. This one's just right. And then she wants to go kick her feet up in the chair, right? This one's too big. Then she goes, this one's too small. This one's just right. Then she gets tired. She wants to go lay down. This one's too hard. This one's too soft. This one's just right. And isn't that how the devil is? Doesn't he lull us to sleep that way? 
getting us to have that, those kind of criticisms. Oh, this church is too hot, too spiritual. There's too much. They ask too much, too much truth. This, this, this church is too cold. It's not spiritual enough, not, not enough. This one's too hard, you know, just too, too hard, too much truth. This one's too soft. It's too watered down. This, this one over here, you know, is, is too big. And then this one's too small. And, and what we don't understand is the enemy is lulling us to sleep with that kind of mindset. We don't understand that at some point the bear is going to break through the door on us while we've been lulled to sleep with those criticisms of don't expect too much, don't ask too much, don't challenge me. Whatever you do, just make sure I feel good. Don't ever let me feel the conviction of the Lord. Why am I saying this? Because when I think about churches like this, and I think about your history and I think about your successes and you look around at all the territory you've taken. It's so easy to look around and say, man, look at what we've done. What hurts churches like this is not going to be overt sin. It's not that you guys are beyond that. What affects churches like this is the mindset of, of look at all that we've done. It is the bed of complacency. And I just sense the Lord putting it on my heart to challenge Church Unlimited to say the greatest territory that you've ever taken is still in front of you. The greatest victories that you've ever seen have yet to be experienced. The greatest harvest that you have in, is yet still in store for you. God is not finished. He's not done. Your greatest, most powerful anointed days are still in front of you. You see the king size bed of complacency says, I've, you've dreamed enough. It says I've served enough. It says I've given enough. I've sacrificed enough. I've reached enough. I've prayed enough, 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 enough. Come on over here. Look at this bed. Isn't it? Isn't it massive? Isn't it? Doesn't it look comfortable? Doesn't it look warm? You've earned it. You deserve to kick your feet up and rest on what you've already accomplished. Shh, shh, sleep, little Christian. Don't say a word. Don't do anything. Don't keep coming to church every week. Don't serve. Definitely don't tithe. The devil's going to buy you a mockingbird. complacency is such a dangerous giant because it's so subtle. Amos chapter six and talking about how the people of Zion, which is the church, have become complacent. This is the pictures that it gives us concerning them. It says they lie in their beds. They lie or they lounge on their couches and they recline at their banquets. They're materially wealthy, but they're impoverished spiritually. And it says the mindset is they're lying in their beds, lounging on their couches and reclining at their banquets. They're doing nothing to resist this giant of complacency. They've just given in. They've just settled in. They've just said it is what it is. I'm not going any further. I'm not doing any more. What it is is what it is. You see, a lot of people when I say something like this, I want to balance it out with I'm not talking about that you shouldn't get rest. Rest, we know, is spiritual. The Bible actually says God himself rested. 
The Bible says we are to labor to enter the Lord's rest, which means really spiritual rest is work. It's hard. You have to labor to enter rest. Because rest like that is me saying, okay, God, I know I, not need to I need to unplug because I need to get recharged. I need to get refueled. I need to get refilled so I can go back at it. And I'm gonna believe as I do that and I don't work the way that I have been, you're going to actually be working for me. Rest is a place of faith. Complacency is a place of unbelief. It's saying, I don't want to do any work. Complacency is saying, I don't want to do anymore. I've done enough. Now it's on someone else to do things for me. This is what the children of Israel are looking at. All the giants they fought, all the sacrifices they've made. Now this nation is one giant away from the promise of God, one giant away, not the Goliaths out there, not the six fingers, six toed giants that you read about in scripture, not even Goliath's brothers that you hear about that even David wasn't strong enough to defeat. One of his mighty men had to defeat. That's not the giant here, the final giant. They had defeated every other giant, every other giant they came up against, that giant fell. Every other giant that confronted them, they found a strategy to defeat that giant. This giant survived all the battles. They couldn't find a way to defeat this giant. It's the last one, and it was the giant of complacency. Romans 11 says it's time to wake from slumber. Matthew 13 says while the farmer slept, the enemy came and sowed the tares. Matthew 24 says while they were in bed, one was taken and one was left. And the scripture commands us after that, you watch, you stay awake, stay alert. Don't become complacent. Ephesians says the times are evil. Stay alert, stay awake. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is about to go suffer and die on the cross, shed his blood for the sins of humanity. And he looks at his apostles and he says, this is it. This is what we've been working towards. This is what we've been believing for. Right here is the crucial moment. You stay awake. I'm gonna pull away and pray. He pulls away and prays. And just after moments, he comes back and he says they couldn't even stay awake for an hour. They couldn't even go one hour without the giant bed of complacency getting them. So he wakes them up. He says, I need you. If I've ever needed you, it's now. We're not finished. The miracles are not over. We've not arrived. We've got further to go. And he pulls away. His sweat's becoming great drops of blood. He turns around and there they are once again in that giant bed of complacency. What I'm trying to say is it doesn't matter what you've been through in God, what you've seen in God, complacency will come after us all. And it will not kill us with a spear. It doesn't kill you with a sword. It's not overt. Again, it's a subtle. No weapon is really even necessary. Just a king-size bed of complacency. 14 foot long, seven foot wide bed is all that it takes. You see, when complacency hits your life, you start to see other things like compromises in your life, things that you had already made a decision you were finished with, things that you wouldn't do, ways you wouldn't think, attitudes you wouldn't embrace, all those things you'd already decided, but now all of a sudden you're finding yourself compromising again. But compromise is the fruit. Complacency is the root. 
If you see anybody that's done anything for God in the Bible, before you see great compromise, you see them in the king-sized bed of complacency. The Bible says King David, here he is, this mighty giant killer, is supposed to be out to war like the other kings are. This is his time to be engaged. And the Bible doesn't say he immediately jumped in the bed with Bathsheba. Before that compromise, he has his feet kicked up on a balcony with a scotch in the rocks, that's added, in his hand, come on. And he's looking at things that he shouldn't be looking at. Complacency is the root compromise and Bathsheba was the fruit. He was in the bed of complacency before he ended up in the bed of adultery. Samson, if you read about him before, this mighty man, this, this man that with a jawbone of a donkey killed a thousand people, it wasn't overnight that he lost it. The Bible says that Delilah got him to fall asleep on her lap while he was sleeping. While he was complacent, she cut his hair. She called the enemy in. The enemy gouged out his eyes and chained him up. Complacency was the root. Compromise with Delilah and losing his standards was the fruit. The reason complacency is so dangerous is because it's the setup punch. It's the jab. It's the jab but the hook is coming. The enemy knows exactly what he's after. He's not just going to let you lie back and relax and enjoy life. He wants you to believe that you can do that and actually stay at one place. But once you're there, he knows, he's studying, he's watching you, he's looking, and he knows that you're in the perfect position for him to actually take you out with a more fierce giant. The commentary said, that this bed that we're reading about was imported from India, that it was made and custom designed for a giant. They, the commentary said that in that culture, they believed that giants are invincible. I started thinking about how the enemy has a custom made king size bed for every single one of us. He studies us. He knows exactly how to do it. He knows exactly how to introduce things into our life where we think this is invincible. This is impossible. I could handle a lot of things. I could push through a lot of things. I could overcome a lot of things, but this right here, I cannot beat. I cannot do anything about it. This is invincible. Complacency is the false belief that I can't do anything about this. This thing is impossible. This thing is invincible. The enemy prophesies to you and I, you can't do anything about this. There's no way to defeat this. There's no way to beat this area in your life. And actually no one even understands what it's like to be in your shoes and face those particular things. But what you have to understand is that's what complacency does to us. But what you really need to know is when you're looking at something that's invincible and something that's impossible, that's actually God's specialty. That's where God shows up at his greatest. That's where God is his strongest. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, God delights in our impossibility, impossibilities. The more impossible, the more invincible, the more God likes to show off. If you're looking at something and you're saying to yourself, man, God, I need you to come through about 10%. I got the 90%, you do the 10%. That's not where God's specialty is. Even if it's 50-50, like God, I got 50, you got 50. No, God shows up 
his greatest when you've determined I can't do anything about this. This is impossible. This is invincible. This is greater than me. This is stronger than me. Nevertheless, I'm not going to say it's invincible. I'm going to say for me, maybe, but where something's impossible for me, all things are, are possible with him. And so I'm going to trust you can do with it what I can't do. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible. When something feels invincible, that's where faith is needed. The Bible doesn't say we can easily lose. As a matter of fact, the Bible says it's impossible to lose God's love. There's anything you do, God's love's unconditional. If you miss it, he loves you. If you drop the ball, he loves you. If you live the rest of your life in the king-size bed of complacency, God loves you. That's determined, that's finished, that's sealed, that's given to you and I. His love is unconditional. But faith, the Bible says it's impossible to please God without faith. So the question isn't, do, does he love me? The question is, do I please him? And faith is how I please God. And faith kicks in when I look at something and I say, man, the devil custom made that situation for me. He custom made it. It was, I was thoroughly thought through when he introduced that situation to me. And I've thought to myself, man, God, I could have done that. I could have faced that. I could have overcame, but this, no way. This is bigger than me. And God's like, yep, that's where faith shows up. That's where you need me. And that's where we please God is when we say, I can't, but God, I know you can. You know, biblical history teaches us that the children of Israel finally defeated King Og. And the way that Bible history teaches us that they would handle the spoils of a victory like this is whether it was a king or a giant, they would take memorabilia, they would take uh, war trophies, faith trophies, they would grab things like the, the robe of the king or the crown or jewelry, they would potentially take things like the armor or the shield or the sword, something notable about the victory and they would carry that back to the capital city and bring it into the temple. When they would bring these war trophies, these faith trophies back to the temple, they would hang it on the walls of the temple. All across the temple, there would be walls from these 31 different giants and cities that were defeated. You would see the memorabilia, these war trophies, all along the walls of the temple. So when former generations would show up, they could look around and they could see Goliath's sword. And then the one generation would tell the up and coming generation, oh, you're not going to believe how David did it, just a slingshot and a stone. And then they would go to the next one and then the next one. And they, they would tell the stories. Well, history teaches us that what the children of Israel did was when they defeated King Og, they took this 14 foot long, seven foot wide bed as the faith trophy and they hung it on the wall of the temple. So could you imagine you're a granddaddy and you're walking your little grandson around the temple and you're showing him this sword and this spear and you're showing him that battle axe and you're showing him the lethal weaponry that was used in those days and the young boy is just so enthralled with the danger of each weapon and then you come across a giant bed hanging on the wall. Could you imagine what that little boy might think? Granddaddy, I know what the battle axe was like. I, I can see how the sword 
was a threat. But why a giant sized bed on the wall? And the granddaddy telling his grandson, oh, that was the most dangerous of all. That was the, the giant that posed the greatest threat to the children of Israel. That was the giant of complacency. And they had defeated every other giant, but that was the hardest giant for them to defeat. You see, I know that the children of Israel faced this giant, but I know that we also face this giant. I understand the same God that gave them the victory is the same God that gives us the victory. I believe it's why one of Jesus's favorite sentences to us was to take up our beds and walk, to take up those areas of our life where the enemy has subtly caused us to give up. I don't think we give up. I don't think we quit in any area of our life for any other reason than we get weary, we get tired, and we become fatigued. We've just done everything we can do. We've come to our end, and there's nothing else we believe we can do, and we just give up. We just quit. And I'm gonna give you what I believe will be insight into how you defeat the giant of complacency real quick, and we're out. The deception would be you hear a message like this and you tell yourself, I've got to do more. I'm going to leave here and I'm going to do more. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to put more effort in. I'm not going to be complacent. That's not what I'm saying. Because complacency doesn't take root because you weren't working hard enough and you weren't putting enough effort in. As a matter of fact, the amount of effort, the amount of work you are trying to put in is probably the reason you became so fatigued and you became so tired and that's why giving up and complacency is so tempting. So the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse one that we have this ministry because we have received mercy, therefore we do not lose heart. So any area you've lost heart, you call it things like burnout, depression, discouragement, you've just given up. You're too tired to even pull yourself out of the bed to handle it. You've just, you've just settled into how it is. You've lost heart. The reason you lost heart, the Bible tells us, is because somewhere along the way, you stopped receiving mercy. You don't defeat complacency by saying, I'm going to work harder. You defeat complacency by saying, where have I stopped receiving mercy? What area of my life have I not just stopped receiving mercy for me, but maybe stopped receiving mercy for my children, stopped receiving mercy for my church. The same grace that you need, Church Unlimited needs, the same grace you need to be extended to you, your spouse needs to be ex extended to them, the same grace you need the other people in your life. But what happens, we get overly critical, we get overly judgmental with those that are around us, and then we beat ourselves up. And what happens as a result? Because we stop receiving mercy, we lose heart, we burn out, we end up in the giant bed of complacency. So it's really easy. You don't have to work harder. You don't have to strive more. You don't have to try harder. You don't have to leave here saying, I'm not doing enough. You have to leave here saying, God, I need to receive mercy. I need to be reminded of your goodness. I need to be reminded of how, how much you're for me. I need to be reminded of how many areas of my life you've been good to me. And even in the areas of my life that, that I'm not, I don't believe are where they need to be, God, I'm going to receive mercy 
And when you start to receive mercy, you know what happens? You can't wait to get out of that bed. When you start to receive mercy, you can't wait to say, God, because you've been so good to me, I wanna show that goodness to others and towards myself. Because you've been good to me, I know that this giant isn't going to define my life. Because I felt burnt out, I don't have to stay burnt out. I don't have to stay depressed. Why? Because receiving mercy is the thing that helps me overcome the subtle giant of complacency. So all across this room, I want you to put your hands on your heart. And we're just going to say this just in, in our minds. I want you to take any area that you've had a gnawing sense, a gnawing sense that something's not off, but you've been doing nothing about it. Just a gnawing sense that something's off in the home, a gnawing sense that something's off in your way, walk with God, but you're doing nothing about it. right where you are, where the enemy would say, you got to work harder, you got to try more. I believe the scripture is what can set you free right where you're at. Just receive his mercy. Take a minute and think about his goodness. Think about how faithful he's been, how gracious he's been, how good he's been, how sweet he's been to you. Come on, he's stuck closer to you than he ever should have. Any human being would have given up on you a long time ago. Come on, receive that wonderful mercy. Mercy is when you shouldn't have had another shot, God gives you another shot. You shouldn't have any more chances, God gives you another chance, that's mercy. Receive mercy for you. Receive mercy towards those people in your life. And in Jesus' name, take up your bed and walk. Don't be defined or limited by complacency one day longer. All across this room, you'd say, Marcus, I'm not right with God. You've never received that initial moment of mercy where God forgives you and cleanses you and washes you. You've never made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. You've never said, yes, God, I'm gonna put my trust in you and surrender completely to you. You're here today and you'd say, Marcus, I need that new beginning. I need that new start. I need to get right with God. I need to be at peace with God. And you want me to pray for you. No one's looking around from the front to the back. You say, that's me. Would you pray for me? I need that new beginning. I need that new start. I need to get right with God. I need to ask Jesus to be the Lord of my life. If that's you, on the count of three, lift your hand as high as you can. One, two, three. Come on, lift it as high as you can. Now put your hand on your heart all across this room, wherever you're at. Keep, keep that hand raised. Keep it raised. I just want you to keep it raised all across this room. Just keep it up. Wherever you're at, I want you to say this. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. I receive your mercy. I receive your forgiveness. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to cleanse me. I ask you to wash me. I believe that you're God's only son and that he raised you from the dead and I give you my life today in Jesus' name. We all said amen.